what I'm going to do is um, try to cover uh, a pretty extensive territory. Um, I'm going to actually read some poems and um, talk between the poems and as, as far as where they come from, uh, things of that sort, and talk about poetics, um, all the challenges. You made me. Out of the sanctity of old names, birth and death cries, the transfigured future crawls forth on two legs. Like the nine-headed beast with a question in each eye, it comes to us, a part of us, beckoning old man river, dragging up earth to the slow mouth of ragged song and surrender. In quest, rage and prayer, Mississippi John Hurt, Johnny Cash, Big Mama Thornton, B.B. Kane, Merle Haggard, the Quarter family, Sunhouse, Jerry Lee Lewis, Bessie Smith, Professor Longhair, Roll Call, and September Storm. The past rises in red bud and blue jay, and blood oath, and ten ways to love a woman remand. Out of the shape changes lament, my burden voice under earth in mid-sentence, way down in Egypt land, lives alongside the leap years Makata, the ghost of Shiloh Church, trade tongues with sexual lilies beside a mill pond, begging dumbstruck nights and tap rut into the blackest soil this side of the Mason-Dixie. Out of this wounded love squinting up at the Southern Cross, above the yellow dog singing Ezekiel saw the wheel, as someone bawled the jack in a room at least a mile inside a lonely house. I rise beyond barred blame, and the thing turned inside out, caught in the hinged jaw of love and hate. I come forth. Out of goodwill, I ride the waves of summertime till I am back washing the midnight blue out of work clothes and Sunday night go to meet in suits and dresses. I am man and woman, daughter and son in Albana in 33 shades of moonlight, belief the last chinaberry tree out of would-be kings among Greek columns and facades overtaken sharecroppers' shacks, singled out and strung up between tradition and live hope, black-eyed peas on New Year's Day, worm hunger at the roots of the cross tree. I am a man who came as a boy out of Little Rock, Selma, Mobile, and Bogalusa, out of a land pregnant with Indian mounds. We newcomers stumble out of English brogans, club hoppers, and wooden shoes shaped like miniature boats out of Sandy Hook, blood ran into the law of hands and the fruit, forcing branches to bow over the trees, bow over the graves. The worm begat the mockingbird, and the mockingbird begat the one-eyed horse, and the horse begat the idea of man and woman. Out of frog hollow, love moans, birds of paradise beside 
the hand pump, dragging up cool waters from bedrock. I come when you call my name and a Wednesday night prayer meeting or feel hollering at daybreak out of birth of a nation and gone with the wind. A new cry on the hills and bank of the Tallahatchie. I found Shingo sitting beneath a crabapple tree holding a scarpin on his palm. Herb man's medicine had the boss man walking the floor for seven nights. A full moon wedged in an oak on a hill, I found Shango weaving my future face. The desire of my body worked its way out of blood in this earth, red leaves on the edge of an almost forgotten season. Up from lowlands to Blue Ridge and Stone Mountain, our shadows face each other, one divided into the other, the good and the bad. This side of the brain, straddling the hex sign, drowned in Louisiana dirt, out of this, out of spit and mud, straw and myth, cat gut, love and doubt. Still I sing, till the auction north faces rise out of bottom land. There are no marks of ownership on my skin, no secret kisses and hugs to pull me under the hush of white satin and lallygag reeds beside the still waters. Uh, essentially, what I attempted to do in that particular poem was actually, um, uh, it became a challenge to capture what I had came out of. I the the idea was not really to make a lineal sense out of out of the place, but to conjure, attempt to conjure the sense of the place out of the language as such. Innu innuendo, insinuation that really took me back to the blues tradition. Um, so sense of place is all always important. Uh, when I think of sense of place, I think of someone such as um, as um, Faulkner. Faulkner's Big Woods, uh, as an invention, as a composite of a place that has everything to do with language, characters, and historical situation. Um, also, interesting enough, when I think of sense of place, I think of someone such as Gene Trumer, especially in his book, King. And what he does in that particular book um, um, is that the urban landscape for him um, doesn't um, represent the essence of the human being. Um, the humanization comes with um, the character named John who's also called Father John, interestingly enough, uh, Papa John, within the context of that particular novel. And he is, he, he's almost African in essence. Um, in the same way that Faulkner's uh, caretakers of his big woods are, in a sense, African, and they are caretakers of the landscape. I remember... Accent um, Gwendolyn um, Brooks when I was in graduate school. I said, Well, what is art? 
She says, art is that which endures. And automatically, I said, well, endures. I think of um, Faulkner again, uh, a, a, a character such as Delcy, who endures the landscape. But also, in a way, she is a kind of walking griot. Um, she has in, endured experiences and what have you, um, a composite of, um, of, of images, a composite of lived, imagined experience. Um, so the landscape essentially represents a kind of endurance. Um, and I was thinking about that earlier today when um, I'm going to I'm going to read a poem with a different kind of diction. It is not my poem, and I won't tell you. I'm just going to read the poem and then talk about where, um, what it comes out of. Um, and it's just a poem. I feel myself in need of the inspiring strains of ancient lore. My heart to lift, my empty mind to feed, and all the world explore. I know that I am old and never can recover what is past. But for the future, may some light unfold and soar from ages blast. I feel resolved to try my wish to prove, my calling to pursue, or mount up from the earth into the sky to show what heaven can do. My genius from a boy has fluttered like a bird within my heart, but could not thus confine her powers employ, impatient to depart. She, like a restless bird, would spread her wings her power to be unfurled and let her songs be loudly heard and dart from world to world. That particular poem is very important to me. It is austere, strange, elevated, sentimental, all those things. And the title is also important. The title is George Moses Horton, Myself. The strange thing about this poem is that Horton was born in 1797 in Northampton County, North Carolina. He was a slave for most of his life until emancipation 1865. Horton taught himself to read and later found himself composing personalized love lyrics of which he sold to, um, to, to, to the students at Chapel Hill. Now, the reason that Horton actually composing these lyrics, selling these lyrics, love poems, to the students at Chapel Hill had to do with the fact that he, 
he had he had this wish to buy himself to buy his freedom okay it's very it's a very strange story when we think about it it's a kind of personalized manumission kind okay. writing poems sell them as love lyrics love poems and buying attempting to buy his own freedom i think it it has a lot to do with the idea of poetry poetry as more than important for for horton this ability to teach himself to read reminds me of also if we think of fitless wheatley fitless wheatley wrote a very important poem on the imagination which he really challenges um um challenges us with the idea of the imagination um now if we think about uh, fitless wheatley her book is published when in 1773 and she comes to uh, the states um as as a young slave right uh, she's 7 or 8 years old she's she's uh, purchased by john wheatley and um purchased for his wife um i think her name is susanna wheatley and wheatley is taught to read and write within the context of that household and she is really writing as a teenage servant i've i've taught wheatley's work and often to students uh, come to me and say well you know i found it really difficult to understand wheatley um i i found that it's above it's over my head but at the same time we have to remember This is a servant writing influenced by Alexander Pope and also the biblical text. Um and she is talking about the imagination. How the imagination is so important to her in a sense that the imagination arms her. She's armed through the imagination. Um as a servant uh writing they sort of um in a way rhetorical um abstracted poems um i grew up um in a very um um small town and um the imagination was very important to me um if we think about the imagination uh often the imagination is mistrust i think in our society because we think of it as not really being pragmatic um we associate with the imagination daydreaming everything has to be um practical everything has to make some sense that leads to an economic uh um stability or what have you it's all tied into economics So um but I I would I would suggest this that through the imagination everything that is tangible um that we think of as objects and what have you at least at one time was intangible and abstract through the imagination before um we can actually 
put our hands on them and use them as tools or what have you. Um, for me, growing up in Bogalusa, Louisiana, I internalized certain images, and I'm going to read a poem that really, I'm going to read a number of poems and then come back to this idea of the imagination. One poem I carried around in my psyche is this little poem here called uh, Venus's Flytraps. I am five, wading out into deep sunny grass, unmindful snakes in yellow jackets out to the yellow flowers quivering in sluggish heat. Don't mess with me, cause I have my Lone Ranger six-shooter. I can hurt you with questions like silver bullets. The tall flowers in my dreams are big as the first state bank and eat all the people except the ones I love. They have women's names with mouths like where babies come from. I am five. I'll dance for you if you close your eyes. No, peeping through your fingers. I don't suppose to be this close to the tracks. One afternoon I saw what a train did to a cow. Sometimes I stand so close I can see the eyes of men hiding in boxcars. Sometimes they wave and holler. For me to get back, I laugh when trains make their dogs howl. Their ears hurt. I also know bees can't live without flowers. I wonder why Daddy calls Mama honey. All the bees in the world live in little white houses, except the ones in these flowers, all sticky and sweet inside. I wonder what death tastes like. Sometimes I toss the butterflies back into the air. I wish I knew why the music in my head makes me scared. But I know things I don't suppose to know. I could start walking and never stop. These yellow flowers gone forever. Almost to Detroit. Almost to the sea. My mama says I'm a mistake. That I made her a bad girl. My playhouse is underneath our house. And I hear people telling each other secrets. How did that poem come about? Um, well, actually, um, all the great distances I traveled, I carried that image in my psyche, the Venus's flytraps. Um, in, in, in times of... Um, troubling times and what have you. That image was always there for some strange reason. I'd been teaching at the University of New Orleans, and um, I'd been teaching uh, there, and, and then I found myself um, teaching third and fourth graders um, at the public schools. And one of the first exercises I would do, the first day of class, I would walk into class and tell them about a secret hiding place I had which was underneath the house. And I would tell them, I said, well, um, light came in from a certain location, what the place smelled like, and also the fact that I could hear voices from my secret hiding place. And then I would um, tell them to, um, to, to write a poem about their secret hiding place. And what they wrote reveals so many things. And that's why at the end of the poem, this idea about secrets, which is really, when we think about it, that's what poetry is about. It's, it's not necessarily 
totally about the unearthing of secrets, but at least it's the embracing of secrets and mystery, mystery more than anything else. So poetry takes us back to the embracing of mysteries, the embracing of, of the forbidden, the embracing of all the things that we know um, and are willing to be surprised by. Um, so growing up in Louisiana was a series of surprises for me. And um, I, I remember always venturing out to different um, wooded areas first learning the names of things. I wanted to learn the names of things. The, I wanted to know the names of insects, um, insects, animals, uh, trees, vegetation, and what have you. I, I, I knew all the vernacular names of, of those um, animals, plants, and what have you. But also I was led to learn the scientific names for things. So in writing, it has to do with the naming of things, essentially. And that's why I think in Faulkner's Big Woods, it's so important that there's a kind of naming, there's a kind of embracing. The same as in Gene Toomer's uh, King, there's an embracing of the place where everything becomes rather tangible um, and becomes layered. So it's a kind of layered reality in a certain sense. Um, it also takes us to, the imagination takes us to uh, those everyday things and helps us to endure them. I'm going to read a poem um, about that in a certain sense, um, about language. Um, my father's love letters. On Fridays, he'd open a can of Jack's after coming home from the mill and asked me to write a letter to my mother, who sent postcards of desert flowers taller than men. He would beg, promising never to beat her again. Somehow I was happy she had gone, and sometimes wanted to slip in a reminder how Mary Lou Williams' polka dots and moonbeams never made the swelling go down. His carpenter's apron always budged with old nails. A claw hammer looped at his side, a station cord's coil around his feet. Words roll from under the pressure of my ballpoint. Love, baby, honey, please. We sat in the quiet br brutality of voltage meters and pipe threaders, lost between sentences, the gleam of a five-pound wedge on the concrete floor pulled a sunset through the doorway of his tool shed. I wondered if she laughed and held them over a gas burner. My father could only sign his name. But he'd look at blueprints and see how many bricks formed each wall. This man, who stole roses and hyson for his yard, would stand there with eyes closed and fist ball, laboring over a simple word, almost redeemed by what he tried to say. So it's that, it's that whole quest for, for language, for, for a way of embracing and redefining one's essence through language, I think. That became important to me early on. Um, the fact that my, my father um, was, was a great carpenter. I didn't realize I, that he also taught me something about um, the writing of poems. That poems are made, essentially. I would help him 
in his duties as a carpenter by the fact that I would measure, he would measure a piece of, of lumber a number of times. He would go back and forth. Um, and when he cut it, everything just slid in. You know, there was no light. There was no light between the boards. However, the ritual of measuring the piece back and forth was rather pain, painful for me because I wanted, to, I wanted to do other things. You know, I wanted to go out and play baseball, basketball, and what have you. But um, at the same time, I think he was teaching me something about precision. Um, but I only know this in retrospect, of course. Um, that there's a kind of conciseness that one reaches for uh, in order to make an art that endures. Going back to Gwendolyn Brooks, I think what she was really talking about was actually reaching for a certain kind of conciseness, um, precision in the language as such. Um, I have a number of poems, I think, about, um, about the creative process. But I'm going to read, um, I'll read the deck, which, which links to the poem I just read, the deck. I have almost nailed my left thumb to the two-by-four brace that holds the deck together. This Saturday morning in June, I've sold two-by-sixes, T-squared, and levered everything with three bubbles sealed in green glass. And now the sweat on my tongue tastes like what I am. I know I'm alone, using leverage to swing the long boards into place, but at times it seems as if there are two of us working side by side like old lovers guessing each other's moves. And this hammer is the only thing I own of yours, and it makes me feel as if I've carpentered for years. Even the crooked nails are going in straight. The handsaw glides through grease. The toenail studs hold. The deck has risen up around me, now strong enough to support my weight, to not sway with this old silly wrong-footed dance I'm about to throw my whole body into. Plumb from sky to ground, this morning's work can take nearly anything. With so much uproar and punishment, footwork and euphoria, I'm almost happy this Saturday. I walk back inside, and here you are, plain and simple as the sunlight on the tools outside. Daddy, if you had come back a week ago, a day before yesterday, I would have been ready to sit down and have a long talk with you. There were things I wanted to say, so many questions I wanted to ask, but they have been answered with as much salt and truth as we can expect from the living. Our, you can see how that particular poem dovetails with the other one. It's about carpentry. It's about erecting something and having a certain kind of stability and trust in what one creates. So, in creating the poem, one has to trust that particular creation. And that's why one goes back and forth 
and tries to make it um, as solid, as in, enduring as possible. I say that um, revision um, is always part of the process. The ability to go back and measure each line to each beat, um, trope of what have you, and re-see and re-experience and relive um, and even embrace a certain kind of audacious spirit, a certain kind of tenacity. It took some time for me to write about my experiences in Vietnam, but I'm going to talk a little bit about those experiences and how those experiences relate to the um, Louisiana poems, which um, called Magic City. My hometown, uh, Bogalusa, referred to as Magic City. Of course, my take on that is anything but magical. But <laughs> at least for, for a long time, I had that feeling. Uh, but, um, but now I think of it as, as, as that. Um, maybe I'll read another poem before I actually go to the Vietnam poems. Uh, because I've also spent a lot of time in Australia. And I've written a poem that, in a way, is about, is about poetry. It's about art. It's about art within the context of the real world. Um, um, the first place I read uh, in, in Australia is in Sydney, a place called Harold Park Hotel. And this is a different sound to this poem as well. The need gotta be so deep words can't answer simple questions all long. All night long, notes stumble off the tongue and color the ear indigo. So deep fragments of gut and flesh cling to the song. You gotta get into it so deep, salt crystallizes on eyelashes. The need gotta be so deep, you can bum up ghosts and not feel broken to you no more than a half ounce of gold and painful brightness. You gotta get into it, blow that saxophone. So deep all the sex and dope in this world can't erase your need to howl against the sky. The need gotta be so deep, you just can't wiggle your hips and rise up out of it. Chaos in the cosmos, motor man in the pepper pot, you gotta get hooked into every hungry groove, so deep the bomb locked in rust, opens like a fist into it, into it, so deep rhythm is pre-memory, the need gotta be basic animal need to see and know the the terror we are made of, honey, cause if you wanna dance this boogie, be ready to let the devil use your head for a drum. You know, You know, there are a couple lines in here that really make me always think about art in a certain sense. Um, rhythm is pre-memory. Um, language itself is music. That's what, I, that's what I believe. That's one of my beliefs. Language as music. Um, but also the repetition of the word need. Need. I think for the, for the artist, that becomes important, that there's a certain kind of need. The poem is need-driven, I believe. Um, and it takes us right back to um, George Moses Horton. He definitely had a need to write poetry, right? He had a need, um, a, a very pragmatic one, but also, let's face it, uh, a spiritual one as well, I think. 
So both of those needs were sort of side by side, embracing each other. Um, a kind of severe endurance, for the most part. Um, it took me 14 years to write about um, my experiences in Vietnam. Uh, I'm going to read a few of those poems. I'm just going to read a, a few of those poems through and not... Uh, and then talk about him. You and I are disappearing. The cry brain down from the hills belongs to a girl still burning inside my head. At daybreak she burns like a piece of paper. She burns like fox fire in a thigh-shaped valley. A skirt of flames dances around her at dusk. We stand with our hands hanging at our sides while she burns like a sack of dry ice. She burns like oil on water. She burns like a cattail torch dipped in gasoline. She glows like the fat tip of a banker's cigar, silent as quicksilver, a tiger under a rainbow at nightfall. She burns like a shot glass of vodka. She burns like a fill of poppies at the edge of a rainforest. She rises like dragon smoke to my nostrils. She burns like a burning bush driven by a god-awful wind. Next poem is thanks. A thanks for the tree between me and a sniper's bullet. I don't know what made the grass sway seconds before the Viet Cong raised his soundless rifle. Some voice always followed, telling me which foot to put down first. Thanks for deflecting the ricochet. Against that anarchy of dust, I was back in San Francisco, wrapped up in a woman's wild colors, causing some dark bird's love call to be shattered by daylight when my hands reached up and pulled a branch away from my face. Thanks for the vague white flower that pointed to the gleaming metal, reflecting how it is to be broken like mist over the grass as we played some deadly game for blind gods. What made me spot the monarch on a single thread tied to a farmer's gate, holding the day together like an unfingered guitar string is beyond me. Maybe the hills grew weary and leaned a little in the heat. Again, thanks for the dud hand grenade tossed at my feet. Outside Chulai, I'm still falling through silence. I don't know why the intrepid sun touched the bayonet, but I know that something stood among those lost trees Move only when I moved. Facing it. My black face fades, hiding inside the black granite. I said I wouldn't damn it, no tears. I'm stoned, I'm flesh. My cluttered reflection eyes me like a bird of prey. The profile of night slanted against morning. I turn this way, the stone lets me go. I turn that way. I'm inside the Vietnam Veterans Memorial again, depending on the light to make a difference. I go down the 58,022 names, half expecting to find my own, and letters like smoke. I touch the name Andrew Johnson. I see the booby trap's white flash, names shimmer on a woman's blouse. But when she walks away, the names stay on the wall. Breast strokes flash, a red bird's wings cutting across my stare. The sky, a plane. In the sky, a white vet's image floats closer to me than his eyes look through mine. 
I'm a winter. He's lost his right arm inside the stone. In the black mirror, a woman's trying to erase names. No, she's brushing a boy's hair. Um, what I realized, um, probably midway through or close to the end of writing um, the Vietnam-related poems, that one internalizes a landscape. Um, when Faulkner creates the big woods, he's really, I think, addressing an internalized landscape that he can pretty much focus his characters into. And the same thing with Gene Toomer. With Gene Toomer, it's a, it's a little different because what he does, he embraces a landscape with such intensity that he internalizes it and makes it his stage, more or less, for his characters. Um, in writing about Vietnam, I realized that I was actually writing about Louisiana at the same time. Um, I realized that um, I had not feared um, the landscape. It's very difficult for me to think about having, if I had come from an urban environment to be placed in Vietnam, First of all, there would have been a fear of the landscape. So for me, coming out of Louisiana with similarities, you know, dusty, hot, um, humid, um, but also just the rituals of the animals, the insects and things of that sort, which I had embraced early on. I was not really afraid of that landscape. So... Um, I dealt with Vietnam, I think, in a different way than a lot of the American soldiers did. And consequently, when I, when I left Vietnam um, and began to write poems, I didn't really think of Vietnam as, as, as subject matter. I didn't think of my experiences in Vietnam as material for, for the subject of my poems. Matter of fact, I had very systematically embraced the conceits of surrealism, influenced by um, Breton's um, manifesto um, and some of the negritude poets who had been influenced by surrealism, such as Amy Cesar and uh, Senghor, and a number of others. And once I had written about Vietnam, I began to write about Bogalusa. All those things happened within the context of, of, of the same moment in my creative spirit at that, at that moment, I should say. Um, I'm wondering if, um, if some of you perhaps have questions at this time. What did I start writing? Hmm. Um, I had actually written a poem in high school. One poem. <laughs> One longest poem. 
I, 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 I raised my hand. I had never written a poem before. You know, and I raised my hand and said, I think I could write a poem for my graduating class. And I, and I agonized about that, you know, and finally one, one night I sort of almost tied myself to the typewriter and I, and I wrote a hundred line poem. Um, it was old rhyme, end rhyme, quatrains. Um, I've been reading a whole lot of Tennyson. And um, I was too shy. I was too shy to read the poem. And the president of the um, drama club, she read it. And the last time I saw her, she said, um, I'll keep it a secret. <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> but I took with me to Vietnam two anthologies of poetry. Um, the one that I read the most an anthology entitled The Voices Great Within Us, um, edited by Hayden Carruth. And I was just mesmerized by Minerville's poems. That's where I really first discovered Robert Hayden in that anthology. And he has been, he has been really a mentor for me in so many ways, just by the way that he would go and um, he started with W.H. Orton and um, he um, would revise his poems over and over. He really wrote a very small body of work, you know, if you look at his um, collected poems, but um, the poems are so important. He has a real, true American voice, I think, in those poems. And that's what's important to me is that Hayden really wanted to be, he's African-American, uh, he's an African-American poet, but he really wanted to be known as an American poet. Um, and a lot of those poems are quite political, but the politics are not on the surface of the poems. The way that I work is that I work on three collections side by side. Uh, I've been writing... Um, a trilogy uh, of, it's a long book. It first started with just a meditation on African-American history. Uh, just individuals that I was very much aware of, but um, for the most part, um, are sort of buried in history. So it was a kind of excavation of those individuals. And then it became uh, sort of a world kind of project, you know, I wanted to look at blacks um, throughout the world. Um, I wanted to look at people such as Pushkin. Um, he identifies, you know, with his African background, Pushkin does, in a number of places. Um, or someone such as St. George, um, who the um, Three Musketeers are probably based on. Um, um, Alexander Dumas, Three Musketeers are based on St. George who was also a composer and a personal bodyguard for the Duke of Orleans' wife, um, the Duchess of Orleans. Uh, I wanted to deal with char characters like that, we sort of in the background. So, what else am I writing on? Um, I've, I've been writing a very long poem in the voice of Malcolm X called Malcolm's um, Ghost. 
It's almost like he revisits this time, and he has a, he, he has a critique of... Um, but a lot of people are going to be unhappy with that critique. Uh, <clears throat> but one has, one has to write from one's own perspective, I think. The ear is a great editor, uh, and it automatically takes us back to the oral tradition. And that's so important. Um, there is a place, back to place. Um, I was in St. Louis um, for a year, and I, and I went back and started rereading Eliot and realized that the music of Eliot's lines, the music of, in, in his poems, had everything to do with St. Louis. That was informed by the activities of that city. The fact that it's, a, it's really a southern city in many ways. On the river, all of that. It was something that Eliot attempt, attempted to escape. Um, you know, where he became uh, more British than the British. But if you go especially back to that, uh, to those early poems, um, Inventions of Marsh Hare, um, one really sees it. One also sees the misogyny and racism. But that's, that's Eliot. It's, uh, those were the things that he attempted to hide himself from later on. Um, but it's there. The music of the telling is there as well. So, um, yes, I read everything aloud. When is a poem finished? You know, I, my, uh, my collected poems just came out, and um, I went back and looked at some of the earlier poems, and I was circling, and just recent, uh, with the book published, I'm still uh, circling words. Yeah, and I said, well, for me, the process is really paring down. It's an, it's an ongoing process. I think as someone said that we abandon, I've forgotten who it was, we abandon poems to the world. Who was it? Auden? Oh, is that right? <laughs> Hayden's, Hayden's teacher. Yes. We abandoned to the world. But um, what do I say to them? <laughs> well, is it finished? Um, I would tell them to attempt to live with it for the moment. <laughs> and time, time will also become the editor. Because um, we want to hold on to, we think of inspiration, we think the poem is inspired for some reason. We don't want to tamper with it, uh, with the emotional architecture of the poem. But um, I think often we, with time, we become rather vicious. Langston Hughes is a very interesting one to me because I had been reading first British poets, reading a great deal of Shakespeare because <clears throat> I had a teacher who would um, have us march up to um, 
the tape recorder and recite these long passages in the tape recorder and we would hear other voices come back. Um, and finally I got to Hughes and uh, it was so different. Um, I could hear people around me in Hughes's poems. And that was, um, that was a relief in many ways, but also a challenge. Lately I've gone back to Hughes and looked very carefully at Hughes's poems. And I feel like there are a lot of important poems there and a lot of poems that um, they don't survive as poems for me. Um, but it's me at this moment in time. But I realize that Hughes is such an such important um, uh, foundation. Dunbar, see Dunbar is an interesting one too. Born in Dayton, Ohio. Um, I, I like the fact that Dunbar is conscious that he's writing two different kinds of poems, at least two different kinds. He's writing um, poems in standard English, and he's writing poems in dialect. Most people are attracted to the poems in dialect. He wanted people to embrace the poems that are written in standard English as well. He wanted, he wanted to have the duality and at the same time um, um, acceptance, I think, from a larger literary world. Um, Dunbar be, made me start thinking about the Midwest because I had been living in the, in the Midwest for a while. Eliot, Dunbar, all these voices. The Midwest is an interesting place when it, when, it, when, it, when it comes down to unique voices. And the reason for that, because I've been thinking about it, uh, has to do with time and space um, for these unique experimental voices. If we think of it, you can just go down the list. Uh, Dunbar from... Dayton, Ohio, Dayton, Ohio. Um, Rexroth from South Bend, Indiana. Elliot from St. Louis. Um, William Burroughs from St. Louis, right? Um, and then look at other areas as well in the arts, um, especially jazz. Uh, Parker, very unique voice from Kansas City. Miles Davis from East St. Louis. You just go right there. <laughs> there are a lot of them. Joseph Seaman Cotter from Louisville. Very few people heard of Cotter, but I think, I think of him as a very important voice. But the other thing is that there's a kind of classical education going on as well for these, for these writers, I think. And, and, and thinkers in St. Louis and places, places like St. Louis, I should say the Midwest, the whole of the Midwest. Um, yes. 
Yes. <laughs> Quincy's troop from, from St. Louis. That's right, that's right, that's right. The short line poems um, has a kind of vertical plunging effect that are very, you can say, urban in, it, in its intensity. That um, this the movement of the poem. And for the longer lines, the horizontal line invites more of a meditation for me. Um, and I, I, want, I want to think more about it, you know. It's something that I've, I've thought about, but I want to think even more about it, um, especially when I think of Whitman. Um, Whitman in that long line is so important because when I got to Whitman, uh, Whitman was sort of taboo. Um, I, I should say this way, that when I... Um, began to ask questions about Whitman when I was in high school. Whitman was behind, was behind the checkout desk. <laughs> That's where they kept Whitman. Whitman. You know, it was ridiculous. But Whitman, when we think about the biblical, Whitman is influenced by biblical texts. But I've been saying as well that maybe Whitman is also influenced by the spirit of the frontier expansion. Um, and perhaps, of course, remember that Whitman, uh, like operas, especially Italian opera. So I think maybe the long line is important in reaching the... Uh, for a crescendo, always, you know, it's always that, that kind to move upwards as opposed to the plunging. It's, a, it's that, yes, um, the long line uh, is more. The other thing about Whitman is that there's a kind of layering that happens, and maybe the long line um, can handle that layering more in an artful way, I think. But it's things that I'm, I'm still thinking about, essentially. No, I don't believe that. Um, one reason I don't believe it is that for the number of readings across the country, um, I, I do a number of readings, and I know a number of other people who do many readings, um, a good example of San Francisco. It's my understanding that the last, um, what, 75 or years, there hasn't been a night to go by without a poetry reading somewhere. That's an amazing record. <clears throat> but there are also a lot of small towns um, across America that have poetry readings. Um, so so I, I think of it as a, as, as a healthy time, because if we go back uh, in recent history, um, I, don't, I don't know if poetry was all that encompassing, embraced by, uh, uh, let's face it, one, one has to have a love for language. And I don't think one should um, water down one's um, 
content, craft, or anything of that sort in order to embrace, embrace a larger public. And the public has to come to the artist, I think. Otherwise, it's a disadvantage to both. It's going to be the last poem in um, Pleasure Dome. But it's also the last poem in um, These of Paradise. It's called Anodyne. I love how it swells into a temple where it is held prisoner, where the god of blame resides. I love slopes and peaks, the secret paths that make me selfish. I love my crooked feet, shaped by vanity and work shoes made to outlast belief, the hardness, coupling milk it can't fashion. I love the lips, salt and honeycomb on the tongue, the hair holding off rain and snow, the white moons on my fingernails. I love how everything begs blood into song and prayer inside an ache. A ghost hums through my bones like pans, midnight flute shaping internal laws beside a troubled river. I love this body made to weather the storm in the brain, raised out of the deep smell of fish and water hyson at a rapture in the first regret. I love my big hands. I love it clear down to the soft, quick motor of each breath, the liver's ten kinds of desire, and the kidneys lust for sugar, the skin, the suck of dung enjoy the spleen floating like a compass needle inside nighttime, always divining West Africa's dusty horizon. I love the birthmark, posed like a fighting cock on my right shoulder blade. I love this body, this solo and ragtime jubilee behind the left nipple because I know I was born to wear out at least 100 angels. Thank you. Thank you.